The following podcast contains swearing, satire, and criticism of the Daily Mail. Basically, all of the good stuff. I like Deliveroo. a satire show on which I worked for five years could have played a crucial part in launching the career of such a deeply destructive politician. It's one thing for members of the Bullingdon Club to have a laugh smashing up a restaurant then walking away. It's quite another to do it to the European Union. But I already had my suspicions that shows like Spitting Image and Have I Got News For You helped politicians more than they harmed them. Despite my youthful faith in its political importance, despite my sincere wish that the opposite were true, I came to the disappointing conclusion that satire does not work. All those years, when I imagined I was exposing the vicious hypocrisy of Thatcher and Major, all it ever did, if anything, was make people a little bit better about everything. You were cross with the government, then you laughed at the government, and there, it had been processed. You dealt with it, which makes satire worse than ineffective. Rather than undermining the establishment, I think it actually helps maintain the status quo. George Orwell said that every joke is a tiny revolution, but the effect of all those tiny revolutions is that one big revolution is endlessly postponed. What are you talking about? Well, just that I don't think that all the satirical work I did in the 80s and 90s, I don't think it really changed anything, you know? I was careful to, be, to say the bit, though, that wasn't my words, the George Orwell quote. Yeah, but what satirical work did you do in the 80s and 90s, Joe? Oh, loads. I worked on Radio 4's Weekending and Spitting Image and Have I Got News For You? <laughs> you didn't. Uh, no, I didn't. What I did there was I confused the words of satirist, left-wing, activist, all-round good egg in the opinion of me and Robert Webb and Sadiq Khan, John O'Farrell. And two of those people are cited on the back cover of John O'Farrell's book, Things Can Only Get Worse, Penguin 2018. And I'll leave you to guess which two. Is it Sadiq Khan and Robert Webb? It is. <laughs> and the quotation is from O'Farrell, pages 88 to 89, isn't it? It is, it is. But I like that book and I like that passage so much, I wish I had written it. And that's why I pretended they were my words. I'm really sorry. I just wanted our second season to get off to a provocative, erudite and interesting start. Well, you tried. Just be careful with plagiarism in future. And on that bombshell, welcome listeners, old and new, to the second series of Smith and Wall Talk About Satire. Satirising me, Joe War, aha. Satirising you, Adam Smith, aha. And satirising you, the you, the listeners at home, in your car, wherever you're listening, aha! We got a second series. That's right, we are relentlessly rehashing... You need to say aha. I don't want to say aha, and I think that might also be plagiarism. It's not plagiarism, it's a homage. It's a homage to Alan Partridge, but with a twist, because we got a second second season and he famously didn't he didn't get a second season he didn't get a second season i think the important thing is we are back for a second season of smith and war and what a cork it's going to be we've got guests that you wouldn't believe satire like you've never heard before we've got people who actually identify as satirists but are they Ah. people who don't identify as satirists as well but are they people who curate satire Experts in satire, students of satire, lecturers in satire. We're talking Twitter. We're talking Daily Mail and the Mail on Sunday. We're talking the 18th century. We're talking Brexit. We're talking teaching. We're talking satires. We are Adam Smith, lecturer in 18th century, and Joe War, lecturer in the 19th at York St. John University. And we actually have a bit it's of a big, big news. news. A big bit of news. A bit of big news. <laughs> it's... Adam and Joe's Big Bit bit of News. So, Joe, what is the big bit of news? Well, I guess the big bit of news is the the news about the York Research Unit for the Study of Satire, isn't it? That's right, the York Research Unit for the Study of Satire 
is now live and that's a research unit about satire directed by Joe and I yep. with also colleagues from Theatre and Performance, Claire Hind and colleagues from Creative Writing, Rob Edgar. A very good news, isn't it? Yeah, and if anyone wants to hear more about that or, or wants to collaborate on anything to yep. do with the teaching or study of satire, please do give us a yell. Hit us up in our socials. Big bit of news. Okay, so before we get started on season two, Joe, series one, what was it about? It was about satire, wasn't it? It was. It about was satire. us talking about satire. It is. And what else did we talk about? Satire and. We talked about satire and celebrity, didn't we? We did. And we talked about satire and the visual image. Satire and women. Satire and laughter. Satire and the novel. We thought about how satire is supposed to affect some kind of change or make people have a good hard look at themselves and do things a bit differently. But we also talked about how sometimes satire can just be an excuse to be mean, can't it? Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see how this idea of satire bears out across season two because season two is going to be a little bit different, isn't it? It is going to be a little bit different, yeah. How is it going to be different? Well, it's going to be different in that in season one, we talked to lots of people who do research on satire and especially satire in the 18th century. We are going to be talking to some of those people again. We'll be talking to Dr. Helen Williams, for example, about teaching satire. But we're also going to talk in this season to some practitioners of satire, aren't we? The vision here is that series one was about people who work on satire and series two is people who engage in or produce satire in some way. Be that as a satirist, be that as someone who curates satirical material teaches satirical or even teaches or studies satirical material which is going to be interesting isn't it because generally speaking when speaking to fellow scholars in series one we're discussing how satire works we're not producing a satire Mm. so we're kind of we're all on the same page whereas when you start interviewing people who Who relatively yeah or actually because of the nature of satire sometimes relatively controversial figures interviews could be read as an endorsement couldn't they we might interview people we don't agree with every word off mightn't we I we suppose. might we might and I think, we'll be all right. I think we'll be fine but it's just a case of framing that you know we're going to perhaps encounter ideas and views that that we ourselves don't endorse I suppose it's yeah. a bit like it's a bit like when you follow someone on twitter you're not necessarily advocating their views mm. you might you know i might follow someone from an opposing political party because i want yeah. to see what they're saying or mock them um, or mock them but but i i always say that following isn't an endorsement anyway we'll talk more about twitter yeah. later for now we'll be finding our way through the history forms and future satire and bringing our research to a wider audience through a variety of accessible forums anyway i was reading a really good column on the daily mail website before i came in this morning <laughs> That klaxon, listeners, was not, as you perhaps might expect, to warn you that I don't actually think the Daily Mail website is all that good. But rather just to remind you that when we record this, sometimes it's a little bit far in the past by the time the episode actually goes out. So things that might be current right now might be long, long distant memories uh, by the time you listen to the recording. So what were you what were you reading on the Daily Mail website, Joe? Well, it was it was very interesting. It was an article by philosopher, soothsayer, and sometimes presenter of daytime TV, twenty first century sage Piers Morgan. Oh yes, he is a good man. What was he writing about? He was writing about this quote: "Don't you feminist snowflakes dare turn James Bond into a woman? He's the last real man left in Hollywood." End quote. It's actually a really terrible news story. I'm going to quote again. It's emerged that producers have determined James must now navigate the Me Too movement, which basically means him morphing from a steely-eyed, murderously sophisticated, womanising caveman into a touchy-feely, over-emotional wreck who wants to talk sensitively to ladies about his problems, not bed them, and also undergo a sex change and become female, end quote. I feel ill about that story. 
Yeah, I saw that. I have to say, I have some issues with Piers Morgan's argument and I didn't feel like he totally understood the conversation he'd entered into. Well, I hardly think that Piers Morgan, poor science stalwart of the Good Morning Britain sofa, is going to wade into a debate he doesn't understand and come up with something asinine, is he? Why would ITV or the Daily Mail pay him to do that? Nobody is going to listen to a fatuous, bumbling, shiny-faced prophet of our times holding forth about stuff he doesn't even get. Are they? How would that even work? I think it would work. In fact, I think it does work. And the comments below the line on that article suggest that not only does it work, but a lot of people agree very hard with Piers Morgan, actually. As one person said, What a totally stupid idea, a woman, and I'm one, cannot possibly play the role of James Bond. The idiots who think that it should be changed need their heads examining. Ian Fleming would be horrified he created the character Leave It Be, We Need Tradition, otherwise it would be a complete joke. Look at Doctor Who, why have an actress playing the role it doesn't work? And there's another comment as well from it's David. Not yeah. another one. David said, So many women get kudos for being the first woman who did this or that, but 99% of the time they're simply following trails that men blaze before them. Women will only be truly equal when they blaze their own trails and are not given box-ticking jobs, roles or kudos for things that men did first and better. No doubt that there will be some whataboutery claiming women did this or that first, but even if true, they're simply a drop in the ocean. Wow. Okay, I am now going to break character from the credulous Daily Mail reader I was posing as above and say I don't agree with that. Well even if true Joe your observation is simply a drop in the ocean. Well we're all drops in the ocean. Ah, Aren't the comments in the mail funny though? They're not funny haha they're funny genuinely quite terrifying. We've seen Hitler commended for being a true environmentalist. We've seen the EU described as part of a global plot to destroy any national country or patriotism to replace with one world of zombies. We've seen Scottish judges described as traitors who need stringing up. Whether you're Meghan Markle, Scottish, French, left-wing, a Remain voter, a student, a benefit recipient, Emma Thompson, a child, an activist, Jeremy Corbyn, Jodie Whittaker or John Burko, you have been profoundly hated on in the Daily Mail comments. They're a rich seam of vitriol and no mistake. Can't be just us who thinks that, can it? No, it can't. And it isn't. Our guest today... Uh, did, well, <laughs> I'm just a little bit. Curious. I just want to clean, clear something up. When we talk about the Daily Mail, that yeah. that's the one that comes out during the week, isn't it? It and comes then, out daily. Yeah. Yeah, and then the Daily Mail on Sunday, the Mail on Sunday. Mm-hmm. That's something it's different. It's totally different, different isn't yeah, it? Okay, so it's very different. I think yeah. it's, in, it's important to be clear, and I just wanted yeah. to disambiguate that those two things are not the same. No, no, no. They're, they're, they've got different names, haven't they? They just have this, yeah. a sort of similar typeface and audience and, and, yeah. and modus operandi. Okay, so yeah, so so we're talking about the Daily Mail, not the Mail on Sunday, which is just to be clear a different institution. Anyway, yes, we think it's shocking the Daily Mail and the comments are quite frightening and we're not the only ones because our guest today is none other than at DM Reporter, an anonymous Twitter account with 102,000 followers. At DM Reporter, in a nutshell, tweets some of the most controversial and most popular comments from the Daily Mail. But how did it all begin? How does an anonymous Twitter account become so well known? Is there is there a parallel there? There is actually. Just reminded me, Joe, I think it's time for an 18th century observation. Get on with it. Adam's 18th century observation corner. I think it can often seem like the rise of the internet is a relatively unprecedented thing. So social media provides lots more people with a voice and lots and, and a lot fewer ways of verifying what people are saying, what people are doing, and that leads to all sorts of spats and arguments, and also it leads to, as we'll hear today from DM Reporter, lots of opportunities for hoaxing and for tricks and for fake news and all of that business. It was the same in the 18th century. Was it exactly, it was the, exactly same? the same in the was 18th it? century. It was it was it was exactly the same, the same as I will be arguing for the rest of my life. 
Uh, due to lapses in licensing rules and the emergence of technology that facilitated cheap print, more and more people could print their views and other people could buy their views. And we ended up with this incredibly, fa relatively fast-moving print culture where anyone could say anything and it caused all sorts of bother, but also created lots of opportunities for satire, some of which I think is reminiscent of what we'll be hearing today. Good. Adam's 18th Century Observation Corner. But for now, from the then times to the now times, is it satire to relentlessly share Daily Mail comments? Listeners, we are hugely honoured to be speaking to the man we will be referring to only as DM Reporter in order to protect his anonymity. So the anonymous DM Reporter, welcome to Smith & War Talk About Satire. Can I swear? I like yeah, you swear. DM Reporter is a hugely successful Twitter account. Tell us how it all started. It's um, so what I started. So I started it in two thousand and nine because I was weirdly preoccupied with Fox News. Um, I sort of found it quite fascinating as to how the media operated and the way in which sort of perceived political bias could could be portrayed as, as factual. I went down a bit of a rabbit hole. I became quite fascinated with British politics, and I was reading a lot of um, you know like Five Chinese Crackers and No Sleep to Brooklyn's and these media blogs. And I thought I'd like to do that, but. I'm not very clever. I'm, I'm not very good at research and things I do tend to fall off and stop quite quickly. And I'm not a terribly good writer, but what I can do is I can, I can take the piss. And Twitter is so brief that you know, there's no chance of my, my attention span waning because I've written it, it's gone, it's done, I don't have to worry about it after that. So I just sort of started out for that reason. And I chose the Daily Mail, not necessarily because I had any particular vindictive feelings towards the Daily Mail, but it just seemed to be an archetypal character in itself, and which everyone sort of knew what shorthand for Daily Mail was, or what a Daily Mail was shorthand for. The, the Daily Mail reporter is a um, is the name they give from the byline for their really crap articles. Mm -hmm. <laughs> really, you know, the, 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 people are ashamed to write, you know, it's like the, the Alan Smithy of the journalism world. And I sort of thought, if I could take that and I could be that writer, as if that was that person's real name and that was their character, and I would sort of tweet about what it was like writing the Daily Mail. And that grew very tiresome very quickly, so then it turned into kind of like a rolling news. But the Daily NML is a glorious, easy target. You know, if it was a person, it would be a, a pompous, you know, old man who believes in his own bullshit and thinks it's far <laughs> more respectable than it is, you know, and is full of bluster and arrogance and con conviction in its own its own righteousness. So it's a pretty easy target to, to go after. So I just yeah. started this account and then just started tweeting. I had a couple of friends who had quite high follow accounts, and so I just asked them to, to retweet me out. But that was all in those glory days of, of Twitter when you could fool people, when there were no blue ticks, when you could just yeah. get away with claiming you were somebody claiming you were the Daily Mail and people would kind of believe you and it was, that was a lot of fun that was a great deal of fun for, for four years or so I didn't but people know me now because I tend to screen grab comments or screen grab you know mm. articles but for like the first four years I just made jokes I didn't even do anything directly related to Daily Mail I just, I just made jokes like of on topical events through the prism of the right wing I mean that's fun and now yeah somehow now it's like just ludicrous like over 100,000 followers and how that's plausible I'm followed by vast majority of journalists in this country I did some stats earlier I looked at some stats I, I hit 13 million people a month which is ludicrous it's, it's the sort of my limited intelligence and limited influence I really shouldn't have access to that many people yet somehow I do I've got two great privileges in my life one was I was called a member of the left-wing Twitterati royalty by Guido Four, and uh, I'm also followed by Ron Perlman. So when when you started, then it was it was more of a persona. The brutal truth about a day in the mail is there's only so many jokes you can make about a day in the mail. <laughs> you know, I've been doing this for nearly nine years. I've done every conceivable joke you can possibly think about, and so there came a point. I, I don't know how long it was. But, you know, let's say four years, five years, something like that. Where you just came, look, I can't say anything new about this newspaper. So either I change the the approach 
or I stop. So I just, I started screen capping, I basically sort of taking articles and making more commentary on what they'd written and pointing out inconsistencies or hypocrisies or spelling mistakes. And also going through the Denmark comment section, which is most people now know is a treasure trove of batshittery. It was, it was a lot of fun to start. And, that, and then that became a bit easier because it wasn't so reliant on me being incredibly imaginative all the time. I had some, some terrific fun fooling people who didn't really realize I wasn't the Daily Mail, which to me was my ultimate joke, because if you can't tell a difference between a satirical account and the actual thing, then one of us is doing our job incorrect. The crowning achievements of <laughs> way back when, you know, Liz Jones, the, the journalist you write yeah. to the mail, um, awful human being. He went off to Somalia to go and cover the, the famine out there. And prior to going, she wrote this enormous article about how she was going to Somalia. She needed her shots. And so she went down to her nearest NHS clinic and demanded she get shots. And they wouldn't give them to her because she goes private. And she wrote this awful scathing piece about how rotten the NHS were, scrabbling at the coalface of the NHS, how rude they were, how she was going off to go and save lives with this article that was going to raise so much awareness. And here they were hindering the lives of these poor Africans by not giving her the, the shots that she, she needs. So she pissed off to Somalia. And I sort of thought, wouldn't it be quite funny while she was out there to set up a Twitter account and pretend to be her? And again, because I, I, I had 6,000 followers on it at the time, no one really knew who the DM reporter was. So I could get away with it. So I set up this fake account for her. And I tweeted for like two or three days, just the jokes were never aimed at, at people dying of starvation. They're always aimed at like the perceptions of a rich entitled white woman in, the, in a country she doesn't understand with people she can't understand. But after about three days, it's, it picked up like thousands of followers, many of whom weren't completely sure if it was real or not. And I'd sort of, I dug a, I made a rough my own back because I couldn't quit doing it. I, it wasn't going anywhere. And then it sort of occurred to me that, well, maybe we could we could use this for some good. She, Liz Jones had pissed off a lot of people with her comments about the NHS. And I thought, well, what if, what if we use the account to raise some money? And then when she comes back from Somalia, we've all undermined her. So we've all took this out of her, had a lot of fun at her expense and also made a load of money on the back. So I sort of wrote this big blog post saying, oh, it's a joke. Oh, I'm on just a Twitter account. Ha ha ha. Um, but why don't we, why don't we flip a finger to, to the Daily Mail and everyone donates. I'll write, I'll write for three more days, four more days. You pay me to do it. And in the end, we can all feel good about ourselves and harness the power of social media for good. And so I did that and we, we raised like 30 grand in four days. And so she came back and I was getting like angry tweets from her agent demanding to know who I was and why I was doing it and so on and so forth. And then when she came back, we just sort of said, well, we've done all this in her name. And she couldn't really be furious with me, although she was still. That was a glorious thing. That was when like kind of the, the gods of satire and circumstance and, and good intentions all came together at the right time. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that. So yeah, that was like that was like the good days when you could get away with that sort of stuff and you could play with character and you could play with anonymity a little bit and you could you could mess around and be sillier that's amazing so it, it was satire and biting and everything but also raised huge amounts of money that's such a good story because obviously we talk about the history of satire a lot and we always wonder about whether or not satire whether it's productive or if it has a purpose that does and then we also think about how satire has to always be punching up and that example is punching up and it's doing vindictive and it also generated a really positive outcome and the positive outcome that presumably then they had to stop criticizing you for having done the satirical account in the first place she she mentioned me a couple of times complaining about me but they've never the, the mail have never actually ever come after they did send me a cease and desist email very early on but that's because i was using their logo so i changed which is fair enough so i changed their logo and they've, they've never come near me since so i don't know if they're storing up 
stuff or <laughs> they just don't care it's um, interesting hearing you talk about that the way in which the account acts as a character and you're aware of the characteristics of that character and that informs the way that you tweet because it's something that joe and i have talked about before we actually recently wrote something uh, comparing jonathan swift who was recognized as satirist in his time but one or two times created entire personas and used cheap print to to say things as these personas you know that had an additional weight because they weren't being said by a satirist so famous well not famously famously in <laughs> circles i <laughs> i circulate and um, he once created an entire persona to claim that another person who was saying ludicrous and radical things that he didn't like was going to die, like a prophecy. <laughs> uh, then later, as another character reported that the person had died. And then when the, the guy who was the victim of this satire claimed that he hadn't died, Swift used this persona to say that whoever claimed he hadn't died was out of control. Yeah. And that was a horrifically <laughs> insensitive claim that person hadn't died. Um, we compared that to the recent Titania McGrath story. Yes, um, and below the line, someone commented that we didn't know what we were talking about because we weren't aware of it repeatedly. Because yeah. um, we not qualified, we weren't familiar with a very small satirical account that, that yeah. they liked. So, seeing as you you have got the experience, yeah, <laughs> what is that like having a character that you that you can perform and say things with? Is that is that how you can do it? Is it liberating? What does it feel like to know that you can say something and no one will know who you are, but also that you have this second character that can do things that perhaps you couldn't as yourself? What's it like? The, there is an immense liberation to it very definitely and the DM reporter like in real life I'm terrible at conflict and I don't like openly criticizing people and my like my on my personal social media I try to remain endlessly optimistic and upbeat and positive because I think that's when Twitter was best was when it was people hanging out and making jokes and being funny and complimenting each other and I see no great purpose in being negative on a personal account so yes the, the, the DM report is a very good conduit for just saying the things that are on my mind i am i am acutely aware of having like responsibilities though you know with a with hundred thousand followers I, I don't want to misrepresent anything because people will always call you out on that and i don't want to be too dismissive i mean weirdly i get very little pushback no one really calls me out on it apart from a few very weird trolls. I, I have written stuff in the past that maybe was a bit too much. I didn't think maybe necessarily followed like the own rules of satire. I mean, I punched down instead of punching up. As time has gone on, I'm broadly more aware of it. So I do broadly try to be a bit more responsible with what I write and things that I tweet are tweeted deliberately and are thought about and are drafted and reread and considered before I send it. Um, especially the sweary ones. I spend so long cultivating my sweary, sweary tweets. Just something I did um, a few years ago <laughs> when um, anonymous. Uh, anonymous hacked an account. I forget which account they hacked. Anonymous hacked somewhere, and I um, I hacked myself. I took I took the premise that I uh, my account was indistinguishable from the Daily Mail. Therefore, Anonymous had hacked the wrong account, and so they, they hacked my account and started making proclamations against the Daily Mail. Again, this was back when you could fool people, and yeah. so I think Christian Guru Murphy was the first person, which would really help. And he said, "Oh my God, Anonymous have hacked the wrong people." And then I had a separate Twitter account, which was set up in the name of Paul Dacre, the then editor of the Mail Online. And I then used that account to break my own character, to plead for my account back from myself. Um, and it was, it was beautiful, you know? It like trended for a couple of hours. I mean, people work out after, after a while, of course you do, but that was the most fun I've had. But um, I, I don't think it helps the account if you know the person writing it. Mm. Like the Tatiana thing was like, when it turns out it's some dude, it just... Yeah. It stops being funny. And that guy now writes the Daily Mail, by the way, which is astonishing. As Tatiana McGrath. Yeah. Since recording this episode, we've also interviewed the man behind Titania McGrath, Andrew Doyle. And uh, as will become apparent in that interview, I think he would wish us to distinguish quite carefully here between the Daily Mail 
and the Mail on Sunday. I think that's really important, isn't it? That, the, that these are two very different publications. It's, they are. They um, are. They're as different as chalk and chalk that you buy on Sunday. They are. And it's like you say potato, yeah, I, I say potato, potato on, on Sunday. Sunday. Yeah. yeah. So they're they're really they really are quite different. And just just to be clear, Andrew Dore wrote us the Daily McGrath, not in the Daily Mail. In the Mail the on Daily, Sunday. N- the Mail on Sunday. Yeah. Does does the Daily Mail come out on a Sunday? It doesn't, no, no. So what do people who read the Daily Mail do on a Sunday if they want to read a paper? Maybe the Mail on Sunday, but it's a different... It's a, I mean, it's got the same logo, isn't it? Yeah. Which it c- could be confusing, but they're, they're, it's different. Yeah. It's a different publication. And so what about like, fans of the Mail on Sunday? Mm. Does that come out... Is there a Mail on Monday and a Mail on Tuesday and a Mail on Wednesday? No, no, no. So there's, there's no a, Daily Mail? Not at the, there is a Daily Mail. There is a da- there is a Daily Mail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's but related it's not the to same. the Mail on Sunday. It's yeah. not the okay. same. Right. So just I hope that's clear to everyone. Binary opposites. Those aren't the same. So yeah, he was he wrote an article about the climate change, uh, extinction rebellion protests, uh, and about Emma Thompson. Emma Thompson, thank you. Yeah, oh, yeah. They so, hate yeah. her, don't they? Oh, they, they loathe. Well, she's a lefty, yeah. so yeah. You know, any any reason to take it down. The Mail only really care about climate change if it's a David Attenborough tie-in they can do with Netflix. That's the, the yeah. point. They can claim credit for, you know, Carrier Bags, which was itself and you directed. You know, the, the, they, don't give a, they don't give a shit. They only want what they make money out of. And it's just like, if you're going to take money from the Mail, you're not, you're not a satirist. You're really not. It's the same way as if I wrote The Guardian. You know, I, 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 would, I wouldn't be qualified as being a satirist. But yeah, primarily, I don't think it helps if you know the thinking or the origins or the person behind the account too much it just it just cheapens it a little bit i mean that's that's another thing about satire as well is that you've got to kind of try not to glorify or overly promote your target do you think Mm. that daily mail benefits from all the reputational damage that you're doing which actually promotes what it is that they market themselves as oh yeah perfectly possible yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a massive area of guilt for me as I do, you know, look how awful this thing is. Here, let me recreate it for you and spread it and spread it further. It's, it's the nature of the, of the account. I've grown to be a little bit more respectful about it as, as years have gone by. Like, they, they, they have this thing of every time it's a bank holiday, they insist on going out and taking photographs of, of drunk women yeah. in, the north of, in the north of England and then looking down their tops and up their skirts. And then all, everyone chimes in and calls them slags or fat or whatever. And then they're one can practice themselves and a great job of being a journalist. So I, I sort of, I have to recreate those photographs in order to highlight what they're talking about. But I've gotten better at like taking faces off and, and you know, making, making, making people so that they can't be recognised. But yes, I mean, absolutely. Satire absolutely has to draw attention to its target. And regretfully, I do that. Even with my 100,000 followers though, let's face it, the Mail is the largest news website in the world. It's the most read paper in this country. I suspect I'm probably not doing a great deal of damage to those to people who are going to read it aren't going to read me and vice versa so yeah I, I do feel like i have i have maybe advanced its reputation as being just a bit of a collection of, of, of what's the phrase i'm looking for wankers in a newspaper <laughs> i do feel i have may have pushed that on a little bit online but, i mean also for me one of the one of the things that dm reporter does that i have found really interesting is all the Meghan markle stuff because i don't <laughs> think that i'd realized just how much vitriol there is reading the comments that you've shared about oh she's she's not even pregnant she's older than she says she is and she's the worst thing that's ever happened and yes yeah i mean, I agree with you it's like i despite having done this for nine years i am still amazed at my capacity to be amazed by them 
kind of think you've seen everything and then it turns out you haven't. And the, the Meghan Markle thing is fascinating because I am I am the very definition of an anti-royal. I think the royal family should be stripped of their titles. I think the land should be turned over to the public. I think that, you know, the whole thing, I'm firmly anti-monarch. But I don't like bullies and the male are very definitely bullies. And when it comes to Meghan Markle especially, they are awful. The, the articles are passive-aggressive and are designed solely to create the impression that, they, that it's okay to unbridle yourself with your hate for this woman in the comment section. And it is, it's breathtaking. The moon bump stuff, which is the, the theory that you're right, that she wasn't pregnant, that she had a celebrity uh, fake tummy from TV and film, that she would shift around and there was really three different surrogates, half of them employed by George and Amal Clooney, to provide her with the handsomest looking child upon this birthday. It's it's breathtaking. I mean, it's ultimately, what the fuck is wrong with you? Breathtaking. The, other, the only possible thing to consider about this, and I don't know where I stand on this now, it is plausible that a Daily Mail is just one giant satirical experiment. I mean, the writers know what they're doing. They absolutely, the reputation of the paper is, is in the gutter. And I don't think anyone who writes for it particularly cares because they are targets to hit. And if you write the most inflammatory piece, you're going to get attention for it. And that's what ultimately matters. But there is a theory that, you know, the comment sections are just people taking the piss. Because it's possible, because I, mean, I would rather believe that I was being hoodwinked into thinking people were crazy than people actually were that crazy. And the Mega Markle stuff is, is filled with the nasty, worst, worst kind of racist, horrible, misogynistic vitriol, f- far beyond your average stupid commentator. This is, this is almost orchestrated levels of hate. And it's almost like it's a, it's a competition, it's a one-upmanship to see who can write the worst, nastiest thing about. Um, so weirdly, I'm now celebrated, or celebrated, I'm, I'm weirdly heralded as being this great defender of Megamar, which is something I'm really ultimately not. I just, you know, I don't like the way in which people are treated and it's really, really unpleasant. No, when you look at the comments and you're deciding which ones you're going to screen grab and which ones you post, sometimes they're so awful, but it's so funny to see that someone has said that. Like, I think like a really good example is your, your current pinned tweet with the comments about the nice pictures of Hitler and everyone's saying it's time time to revisit the historical narrative because yeah. actually he looks really friendly and yeah. people like I mean we've got them here on the screen now like the, the account globalist from Denver United States saying they desperately need you back in Europe I hate to admit it but you are right and this sort of thing like that that does make me laugh but it's yeah. also awful when you're doing it what's the What's in your mind? Do you, do you think that's really funny because it's terrible? Is there a ratio between terribleness and, and funniness? <laughs> I mean, the ratio of awful to terrible, I think, really depends on it on each day. The Hitler stuff, you know, this isn't a one-off. There are fans of surreptitiously calling for the return of Adolf Hitler, often to do with the Muslim problem or to do with the immigration problem. And you're right, and it, it, it is funny. And it's funny because they fulfill the absolute perfect archetype of what you think a Daily Mail reader is, which is not. My dad is a Daily Mail reader. To my eternal shame, I've never convinced him not to read that paper so i know that not all male readers are nazis but it's a possibility that all nazis are male readers the idea that someone could on a newspaper forum freely and openly write yes we need to bring hitler back because there are too many muslims in my country it's it's again it's breathtaking and i get i get caught off guard by that stuff often the comments on the most awful subjects are moderated and they still get through you have some intern who works the daily mail looking at a comment going yep yeah that comment about euthanizing the people yeah that's a legitimate comment that's okay. it does make you wonder isn't it either they're completely made up or the world is far more screwed than we first anticipated with the, with the comments the comments is interesting because the male the male have a habit of using uh quotes out of context or using very selective quotes to by an argument so at the time of the recording this we just we just had um, Nigel Farage on the um, Andrew Marr show uh, and they were having an argument about the, the BBC being biased and it was it was a typical deflective narrative but the mail ran a headline story which was viewers back Nigel Farage over 
Andrew Marr. And if you drill down into that, and it's not hard to drill down into it, you've got to just read the article. The, the experts or the, the, the opinions they have to, to back up their headline, one of them is someone who's, who's an anti-BBC tweeter. One of them was someone who writes a pro-Brexit blog. And two of the tweets were from Piers Morgan, who is their US editor at large. And that is the sole basis for their headline story about how viewers are backing Nigel Farage over the biased lefty globalist BBC. So it's really easy to manipulate a narrative. And the mail do it astonishingly without any pause. But I really, I try not to do that when I'm screen capping, when I'm reading the comments section. Because anyone can write anything crazy on the Denmark comments section. It's very easy to do. What I'm most fascinated by is the upvotes. So if somebody's got 3,000 comments, if there's called for Hitler to come back and deal with the Muslims, gets 3,000 upvotes, that's far more interesting to me than someone writing the same thing and getting no upvotes for it. I will only really highlight stuff which male readers appear through the voting system to agree with. Try to be relatively transparent when it comes to the awful stuff that not only someone's saying it, but people are reading it and people are upvoting it. Have you ever been tempted to go below the line on the Daily Mail and comment something? We, we did. I did an experiment with another Twitter account. We took um, Nazi quotes and we rephrased them into speaking about immigration and then we posted them in a series of um, articles about immigration over the course of a couple of weeks and we just changed the context. So we we, we, we replace the word Jews with Muslims or maybe 20 or 30 Nazi quotes, actual, actual proper Nazi quotes, and they all got upvoted. I mean, it's, it's, it's awful. It says, it says so much about reactionary content because, of course, most people who read the mail aren't Nazis. Of course they're not. And of course, most people who even read those sentences would be horrified to hear that we're quoting Goebbels or Himmler or something like that. It speaks more to the immediacy and reaction of an emotional statement. I have a problem. This problem can be solved by this. That's a great idea. And only retrospectively do, do you discover that um, it was said by, by, by Hitler or someone. They banned us from the site and threatened to report us to our, our employers if we would ever do it again. Reading the Daily Mail all day every day must be exhausting. Do you ever think of giving it up? Because I mean this is this isn't an exhausting thing to do. I know like poor me I sit and read the, read a, an app you know a couple of times a day and write a few tweets but it, it mentally it gets to you after a while. You do start to get a bit depressed and you get you, you there are some days where I literally just, I can't face opening the mail app I try not to take it seriously anymore and be more flippant about it and yeah sometimes I just feel like being really silly the, the mail itself is 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 not cited by wiki by wikipedia for being too inaccurate <laughs> a setup for the mocking a newspaper I don't know what it is when 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 wikipedia announced that the mail did an announcement of Wikipedia on their front page a few days later that was so factually inaccurate it couldn't be quoted by Wikipedia. It's it, 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 this stuff almost writes itself. Something you know. I used to write like put a tweet out every half hour. That was my aim. Oh my and, god. Yeah, I mean, I did, I did for a long time, but these days it, I'll do one a day if I, if I can't face it, or I'll do you know one every twenty minutes if inspiration strikes. I feel after all this time I've earned the right to do it as much as I please. I have, I have accidentally become successful at something which I hate doing and that I can't monetize and that I can't take any credit. So I have to, I have to wonder why I continue to do this and kind of look at it is I've now accidentally ended up with this reach. I guess I, I hit like 13 million people on Twitter alone, gone to tell me on Facebook. And I have been afforded this right and this luxury of being able to write something which gets into, gets to people. And is I, a lot of influencers following, which is very, very complimentary. And so if I gave it up, I'm giving up what millions of people sort of say they want through social media, which is for someone to listen. And if I, if I give up this account and this audience I have, then I'm not really allowed anymore to bitch about not being heard. I'm not going to run this account forever. I know when I'm quitting, I've got a date. <laughs> We're going to stop DM Reporter right there and we're going to come back later in the season to talk about when he's going to end the Twitter account. But in the meantime, 
What an interesting Haven't interview. We interesting Haven't we learned things? a lot? Yeah. Do you think there's any ideas we can pick up in future episodes? Definitely. In the next episode, we'll be speaking to Andrew Doyle, Spike journalist, sometimes Sky News pundit, um, and satirist, the co-creator of Jonathan Pye, and, as you've heard in the episode today, the man behind Titania McGrath, and, and a man who also wrote for, um, for the Daily Mail. Daily Mail. For them, sorry, sorry, Mail for the Mail on Sunday, Sunday which is yeah. a different publication. I tell you what, when the Daily Mail went after DM Reporter for using their logo, yeah, issued the cease and desist notice, yeah, they, do you think they've not got round to doing that to the Mail on Sunday yet? Because they well, are clearly, clearly using the Daily Mail's font. It's they? surely a matter of time because yeah. they're, they're radically different publications. Yeah, they, yeah the Mail on Sunday, I, I, the cheek of them. Yeah. Absolute cheek. I guess we'll find out more about that in the next episode of Smith and War. In the meantime, is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners, Joe? No. Well, I'd like to tell them that if they enjoyed the podcast and they'd like oh, yeah. to keep hearing episodes of the podcast, then let us know. This is a research project and it runs entirely on evidence that it is impacting the people yeah. who engage with it. So if you have any awareness at all of this podcast, please do let us know. Give us a yell. Hit us up on social media. Our, our Twitter account is at Satire No More. You also, there's more contact details on our blog. And you can listen to our forthcoming episodes on pretty much every platform now, you isn't can, it? You can, yeah. It's not just silly old SoundCloud Not just anymore, SoundCloud anymore, no. Spotify. iTunes. Google Podcasts. Is there another one? Anchor. Anchor. There's like 10. And if you and if you can't, well, you've, you've found us already, so... Yeah, so I don't know you why know we're that. listening to those, yeah. but it's just because we're kind of a big deal. So, um, <laughs> I like so, yeah. delivery. Yeah, delivery yeah. is good, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's what they so, say on all the good podcasts. I get breakfast from delivery. Has yeah. your dad written a satire? <laughs> My dad wrote satire. It's <laughs> the we bit, read it out that's next our, week? Our next yeah. big podcast. We'll just do that from now My on. We'll just read out something, something yeah. our dad that wrote. That works. Until next time. Sit up. Shut up. And eat my satire. Eat my satire. From delivery. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.